Today, I welcome Liz Free, Director and CEO of the International School Rheintal in Switzerland. In this episode, I discuss the importance of professional development, women in education, leading an international school, plus the cultural benefits to traveling. But you have, have decided to, to jump off from a, from a big ship, not being in teaching, to suddenly get into a small ship and be, be, be the captain of the ship again. I've always been in teaching. Oh, okay. Te- teaching, yes. Teaching schools. You can't take the teacher out of a teacher. <laughs> you can't take the teacher out of a teacher. This is, this is true. So how are you settling into to Switzerland? You're in the north east part aren't you so you border border germany yeah well with Liechtenstein in austria and then yeah. uh, germany's a little bit further north so but not far you know like 40 minutes away or something so yeah we're right in the uh, on the rhine so uh and obviously we've got the alps around us so yeah we can walk i know 20 minutes we're in um maybe even lesser in Liechtenstein. um we go for lunch in Austria, obviously not at the moment because they're in lockdown again. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, south to Italy, so about, I know, 40, 50 minutes to Italy. Yeah. The school is great. You're enjoying being at the school? Yeah, it's very, it's very different. You know, we've got the, I said, the, this is a small school. So when I started, there were, what do we open with? 142 students. Um, we just hit 144. <laughs> and January, we're going to cross the 150. Amazing. So, you know, the numbers are increasing, it's fair, it's, you know, but I, I go to places where I think I can make a difference. So, you know, when it, whether it was um, as a teacher and a head, or when I went to Oxford and stepped out of being directly in schools, to then heading up a really significant PDR, uh, to then coming into BSN, to the British School of Netherlands, which obviously is small, uh, small in comparison to Oxford University. Yeah, <laughs> but, still, but still huge compared to schools. Yeah, although it felt very small when I went into it, because um, I'd gone from, you know, working with 13,000 schools a year to working in a group of five campuses. So yeah. that, that was, you know, quite a, a shift in terms of the everyday um, working, but the principles are the same. Yeah. And then here, I came here because I think I can make a serious difference to the growth of the school. So new building. Um, so that's exciting. So a brand new fancy schmancy eco building will open in 2023. The Arbor School in Dubai, who yes. are doing some incredible stuff with Eco. I mean, they've got biodomes um, and everything. It's amazing. Literally, their, their whole education philosophy is around the uh, ecology and the environment and sustainability. Oh, that, that sounds amazing. A new build already. I know, 33 million. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. The, um, the Hilti family. So the Hilti family are alumni or families or so the Hilti family are in Liechtenstein so they're just literally over the water you know a couple of minutes and you're um, across if you're driving yeah and so they want to attract their international um, staff to their head office which is in Liechtenstein and where all the family is based but the um, the problem is is that books where we're based in the middle of the Rheintal is is a more rural area so you've got St Gallen city to the north which is about half an hour away um uh, but it's not a huge cosmopolitan area. And so they funded the school, the start of the school, what, 19 years ago, because they, they knew, like all international um, companies, if you want to attract international staff, then their families need to be okay. And yeah. if you're on the international circuit, then you need 
uh, an international education so your children can transition back into whatever system um, they then move on to next or a home system. So, so they were involved in setting it up and the town of Book, there's a competition amongst the different towns as to who was going to ha have the school. And they, and each town like volunteered different things like a field or a, <laughs> and then here in Books, they volunteered the land and an old people's home. <laughs> what was an old people's home at the time or had been so we've got like a cold war bunker we've got all kinds of cool stuff here so it sounds amazing the school and i know that you're going to make a massive difference to it um what's been the hardest thing about settling into a new school um since leaving obviously the bsn covid covid mm. has been the biggest thing and it's not even the complexities of the education around covid because as educators we're always you know, whether you know, when I started teaching kind of inner city schools, you, you do the most amazing things with like no money and that kind of attitude that in the trenches type feel you, you have we, at the moment. So we moved to online learning to remote learning. We changed the way we think about how we educate. So that, that's fairly normal, I think, in education. But the thing that I found really hard and it's interesting, you just mentioning travel and, and you know, your need for that is I'm quite a social person <laughs> yes. and I find myself in, in my, the town I live in is called Vangs and in the town I live, which I, it's actually a village really, um, I love it and we did it all online. So we, we had to get the house online and you know, even that was, everything was difficult. Um, but when we eventually got here and I arrived in Vangs, we're the only foreigners. When I say foreigners, I don't mean like from out of Switzerland, I mean from out of Vangs. So, <laughs> so in my street, our neighbours, um, you know, they've got kids at the end of our garden. Next door, the, you know, his parents live. Over the road is another family and two doors down, the aunt lives. And it reminds me, I grew up in the valleys in Wales, and it reminds me a little bit of home. You know, yeah. it's, um, it's nice. But the consequence of which is I don't have, I'm not, so you've got the moving from a major city, like living in the middle of the Hague, to moving to a more rural area and then another step again when you can't, can't go out in the way that you would normally so you know i'm normally clearly i'm not a, a a big runner but i do like to run now and again for vague a vague sense of fitness and i might do park run or something like that you know here you know I, well you can, you can run i mean you can go for miles and climb you know three thousand meter mountains which i've done but i can't i'm not doing it with other people yeah yeah, and so, I think the whole social side is, is shifted, and you're right, the, the, the human side of physically seeing people um, is, is been, I think I agree, it's the hardest thing. And um, you've obviously had a really interesting, varied career. You were a school leader, then a head teacher at Howes in Cardiff, the British School of Boston, then Manchester High School for Girls. But then you took this interesting route into professional development for Oxford University Press and Nelson Thorns. Um, tell us about that and what inspired the change. Well, I, I'd love to say that it was some great um, planned career move, but it wasn't, not in any way, shape or form. I'd been in the States and then came back to Manchester, did a term in Manchester. And then um, I, or two terms actually, I, I met my husband <laughs> who lived the other side of the country. And so I, I gave it all up for love. So I gave up my headship so I could be with my lovely husband. We're still married, thank goodness for that, particularly as we live in Switzerland. Yeah, I mean, otherwise, what, what a story to tell. <laughs> so I moved across the, the country to be with him and thought, you know, I love international education. And so it was an opportunity for me to go back into international education. And we'd have this amazing adventure together. So I thought I was applying for headships. Now, as a head 
and a senior leader, my research background had been professional learning and development for school improvement. I was very interested in that and had completed a master's level piece on it and had written a few things uh, and I had led that in several schools. So I was, I could see firsthand the difference that a, a school that really invested in developing and honing the craft of teaching and learning, those are the schools that were really successful and sustainable in the international sector with a proportionally higher turnover of staff, getting the real essence of a school is important. So, so I was there, you know, um, living in um, Bristol area, so just outside Bristol, and I, well, I did two things. One of the things I did is I thought I, I, I'm going to apply for these um, new jobs, but I need, I can't do nothing. So I, I supply taught, having had three headships. And I went back into South Wales, went back into the valleys where I'd started a long time before and had the most amazing experience. You know, I was up in the, the um, Rhonda in Robert on a Friday because um, it had all these PPA teachers and they kept refusing to go back. Uh, and I really got that real, I mean, I'd always had a passion for education, but it really kind of grounded me again. And it's interesting because countries like Singapore, they do that regularly where you go um, from a leadership position back into a teaching position and then back into leadership. And I think that's good. But anyway, that's an aside. I do, I, do. So I, I, I agree with you. I think, I think that's a great idea. And I think industries do that too. You know, again, you, you, don't, you can't, I don't think you can run any organization without really reinvesting yourself in the shop floor um, because things do change uh, culturally, you know, around the world, what's, what's going on in, ter you know, in terms of people's um, kind of likes and dislikes um, and also the way that you can deliver different different content for teaching so um, so that so you went back into teaching yes um, I kind of did that like just just whilst I was applying for um, headships internationally and then this job came up it was advertised as a professional development leader for be a mathematician now I'm an English graduate but I'm a primary teacher so that means I can do anything so I thought this is marvelous I can do this and I love PD maths not so much um, I love maths, but I'm not so good at it. Uh, so I thought I can make this work. So I applied for this job and I got the job straight away and I started a few weeks later. So in my head, I thought I'd do this for a few terms whilst I find the perfect international headship. And what happened is I stayed and I absolutely loved it. So I got to work all around the UK and in Malaysia and the Middle East. And then Oxford contacted me and said that they had just um, purchased Numicon, which is a maths um, resource and program. And they uh, were really interested in developing, moving from being a publishing house, which is obviously one of the oldest publishing houses in the world, and also one of the largest provider of reading resources for young people. You know, it's a really well-respected education organization, obviously, it's Oxford University and the press division of it. And they asked me whether I'd go and set up a professional learning and development arm to help move them from be publishing books to being a school improvement partner that was really uh, making a significant difference to young people and their life chances. I thought, well, this calls to me, this is all good stuff. And so I did, and I went, and what I learned, I learned about business, I learned about global companies. Um, I ended up leading the biggest PD arm in the UK, working, like I said earlier, with 13,000 schools a year and 120,000 teachers. It was epic. And so I was there for five years. In the middle of it, I had two children, um, and that was all marvellous too. And, and then at the end of those five years is then when I, um, uh, a friend of mine sent me the job at BSN. <laughs> yeah, and then and, and because of your, your interest of, you know, to work abroad and to, to travel, 
that that was a major hook for it but it must have been the role and the the the, the ambition and vision um of the bsn that would have attracted you yes because i was at one of nobody ever leaves oxford university i mean who would yeah. In my mind, you know, it's, it's an amazing organization to work for. But what I saw from BSN is I'd always had a passion for international education and just the, the endeavor that international education is all about, about creating globally minded, um, uh, responsible young people that would really make a difference in the future. The juxtaposition of, of teachers from different education systems, you know, and how challenging that is to change your own thinking about what high quality provision is. So I love all that. And then seeing that there was a job that was doing professional learning and development, setting something up from scratch, which I, I'm into startups, I'm into growing something new and being in quite innovative spaces, working in an international education organization. And then alongside all of that, and this is the thing that matters to me most and actually matters to most people, is the person I was going to work with. And I met, I mean, obviously, you know, Kieran as well. So I met Kieran and I thought he was bonkers. Oh, that's marvellous. He's absolutely bonkers about education and really had a vision and wanted to do something different and was in it for the, the, the journey for really making a difference. And, you know, when you look at all the research, whether it's in education or out of education, about why do people stay? You know, what are the push and pull factors for work? It's their line manager. It's the person that you're having daily contact with. And in this case, it was obviously the, the CEO that I'd be um, reporting to and working with in setting up the International Leadership Academy. And I thought all of those things aligned. And so we just did it. The job yeah. was advertised in April and we moved in July. And, and how was that whole experience? You know, setting a something up from scratch. I know all about that. You know, I founded this 15 years ago. Um, did it work out how you expected? Um, what were probably the biggest hurdles? Um, and when you left the, the ILA, was it in good shape? Did you achieve what you wanted to whilst you were there? Yeah, great questions. What was the, let's start with the biggest, the biggest challenges. Yeah. Is, is when, when you have innovative practice, then it means you've got to go at pace. And so you've got that tension between going at a pace and getting stuff done, getting, you know, actually launching something which takes a huge amount of energy. Uh, you know, whether you're looking at that from a scientific perspective or kind of logistically, everything needs to be thought about. But you're always, whenever you're developing um, anything entrepreneurial, you've got to innovate, but you've also got to build firm foundations underneath. And it's the tension between the, the two, the growth and the getting out there and, and actually being successful in delivering something, being seen to do it, but then also building the capacity underneath. So for me, I was always building for when I was leaving. I didn't plan to leave. I didn't think yeah. that I would leave um, necessarily when I did. But the, uh, what I was trying to do was to take people with me all the way. So building really strong teams, both within the British School in the Netherlands, that would lead on professional learning and development for school improvement. And then and using the potential and the economies of scale of having one organization doing that across, across the, the group of schools, but also in reaching out to the global network and creating a center for Northern Europe, particularly. And so getting advocates in. So I've put a huge amount of energy into that and that's still sustained now. What I think has been really hard is if you're in a startup, so the ILA, I moved in 2016, and in, on the 1st of May, it's my wedding anniversary as well, but on the 1st of May 2017 is when we launched the ILA. And um, last year, it was the biggest uh, provider in Europe for international schools. It's got loads of awards and it's marvellous and has a very beautiful website, I might add, just saying. 
it's glorious. <laughs> Yeah, everything needs to come together, um, but but marketing's nothing without the vision and the operational um, abilities and capabilities that you and your and your team had. And uh, to grow a startup from the ideas that, that that were kind of gestated with you and with Kieran, and launch something really just not even three years ago, just over three years ago, and to be a leading provider within a couple of years is is quite astonishing. Um, and you know, not many probably people tell you that, but you, you can see the facts and the figures. But it's astonishing, and you know, it's great to see that you've left a, a, an incredibly strong foundation and legacy for the for the BSN and other kind of in, international educators to benefit from. Um, so that I mean, what, what a great time to to, to leave. Um, you know, it's always good, I think, to leave a leave something for someone else also to to grow. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think that the challenge now is, of course, in the middle of this COVID period is this is the time you, you mentioned grit earlier. And this is where and I think I wrote about this um, recently is during times like this is when a school you really see and observe what a school truly believes. And so when we talk about professional learning for school improvement, the first thing to go when you hit any kind of financial crisis, which many international schools are hitting at this time, um, others are seeing the other effect, but we are, you know, we're seeing people staying and our numbers are going up. But I know from other colleagues that there are schools which are, you know, there's companies which are repatriating people for the moment. So this is a blip. It's not going to be like this forever, but it's going to be like this maybe for a couple of years by the, by the time we recover. And so those schools, you know, where do they stand now stand on professional learning and development when their revenues are down? There's there, you know, you're looking at the proportion of cost in an international school are on staffing. You're looking at what 85, 90% of your uh, revenue goes on staffing. Well, if your revenue dies, you know, if that even if you just drop 10% or even 5%, can you afford your staff? And if you can't afford your staff and you're letting people go, is that the time to then be investing in professional learning and development for school improvement? And I think that's a, a really interesting conversation about what matters and what schools spend their money on and how do they ensure a high return on investment for their clients, i.e. their families. And so I see those kind of conversations happening. We also know from the COBIS data that one of the things schools have scrapped is, is PD. And when they use, I mean, you notice I don't use the word PD, and I don't use yeah. the word training. Uh, I'm always talking about school improvement. Yeah. But in a lot of these schools, they're seeing it at the IB workshops, the conferences, the flying off somewhere, um, and all of that has stopped. So my challenge really for international school leaders is our schools need to continue to develop. If we want our schools to be great for our young people, then we need our profession to be thinking and challenged and challenging about pedagogy and practice. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. So what, what sort of training do you believe schools should be investing in to satisfy the online teaching requirement? I, I think the, I mean, this is complex, but the immediate issue around the skills that teachers have and then the thinking time into pedagogy and practice, what I would be saying now, and it's interesting that where you are in the world right now, so where we are, we're on the cusp of going back into a lockdown. <laughs> we have some, um, I've had my grade 11 and 12s out for two weeks, they're now back. 
Um, so we've been in this kind of weird in-between place where we've got some um, uh, with remote learning, some in school. So what we're seeing, we're still, we're on the marathon, you know, we're, <laughs> we're still in it. And uh, we, what was set up originally is now still in place in terms of how we're thinking about our remote learning approach. The challenge, I think, from the PD point of view is, is two parts. One is your compliance side. You've still got to carry on. You've still got to do your IB stuff and you've got to, be, um, you've got to meet those requirements. So that's one bit. How do you keep doing that? But the second thing is how do you use the expertise from within and across your networks? So this is where um, building, using your online um, forums, I mean, it's really interesting for me as a new head in, uh, in, uh, in, this, in this school, is that I've had to build a new network of support. So we now have like the Northern European network. This is random group of head teachers, and we just hang out at random points. And so we're learning from each other and sharing. So I think the onus is on the individual staff at this moment. What I expect to see in the next month or two is that the conversations around EdTech and how our technology supports us will start coming in more because our skills have developed. We've, we've been in it and we've experienced and we know what works and what doesn't for us. And I think the quality of the conversations around how we use ed, uh, technology in education to enhance education, I think they're going to be really rich conversations that if we'd had those two or three years ago, it would only be one or two people in your staff, like your techie people, yep. that would be having and everyone else would be ignoring them and just doing what they've always done. Whereas I think the time is, is ripe. So the responsibility for us as leaders is to regroup Go back to where we, you know, almost do an audit of where are we at right now? What have we learned through this process and what can we capture? What can we take from that learning that will now move our, how we educate our young people on into our new hybrid learning for international education? Yeah, I can, yeah, I, again, I agree that, um, you know, all leaders have to, you have to review, you have to go back, you have to see what's worked and you can't just be, be, be brought in the, the kind of the, um, the backdraft of this we just reacted and we're doing it and let's just keep what we did do because we kind of did okay because I've noticed you know I've got four kids in four different schools and the the difference of provision that they all get different ages is 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 one thing but just the way that teachers use the tools we're completely disparate because some are very good at it and it's very clear some aren't so there's a real kind of learning. We don't want teachers to get into bad habits because it's going to increase their, their probably um, anxiety and their stress because they don't feel comfortable in it. And at the same time, the children aren't going to be getting that, that, that teacher who's inspired to deliver that type of content for them. So it's good that you're going to go back. And I think with your approach of collaboration with other leaders, and that's a big driver for me doing this podcast, is to kind of connect leaders, educational leaders from around the world, because you've all got things to, to share and add um, and that's the way we're going to get this this right and what i think is interesting around this this time as well though is that in the past internationally we would rely on the existing networks so we'd rely on the you know the big conferences the things that were done for us but now that that's not happening well it is happening but not quite in the same way is that there's more of an onus on individual staff to connect and, and i had um a head teacher contact me on the weekend and said um you know liz uh, by april hopefully we're all you know covid vaccined and um we're all going to go to munich let's go to munich 
So there's a load of, and they're, they're not even international heads, they're British heads. And they're like, so there's this very interesting group of Twitterati British heads, who I will not name, who are all going to Munich. And now, so I, so I spoke to a couple of my friends who are international heads as well. So we've now got all these heads flying into Munich <laughs> over Easter for this gathering. So we've now created our own conference of sorts of very interesting people who are just doing it because actually we like each other. We yeah. want to hang out more and nobody knows what it's like. I mean, you know, you lead your own company and your own business. Nobody walks in your shoes except you. And actually it's all on your, your shoulders and it's the same as a head. And yeah. I think what head teachers have carried uh, and CEOs have carried in the last year, you know, the financial sustainability, the future sustainability of the organization, the health, mental health and well-being of its staff, of its young people. I mean, the weight has been tremendous. And so the, these are kind of the, the seeds that I start to see coming out of this time is that people are uh, yearning for connection, but we're leading the connection as opposed to being connected. Yeah. And I wonder what's going to happen with that. I think it's brilliant. I think it's a great idea. And I think um, what you'll do is you'll, you'll set some really interesting agendas because there's lots, you know, when you get together, yes, they're social, but there's also something you'll all take out of it that you'll actually go and put into your schools and make a difference. So, And I find it fascinating because it made me really think about, I, was, I got really excited about it. And, I, and then I thought, why am I so excited about spending Easter with a load of head teachers? And then <laughs> what made me realise it's, it's because they, they, they walk the walk that I walk. Yeah. And it is about education, it, but it, and, it, and that's valuable. It's valuable for me to be able to have, you know, go out for dinner or go and do some weird Airbnb experience. <laughs> for poor Munich, honestly, they've got no idea what's coming. Um, is there something about that, about sharing and learning from each other? And when we think about the conferency things that we often do at this, um, uh, in international schools, is what does everyone always comment on? They comment on the food. The temperature and then the thing that they liked most was hanging out with each other and yep. the informal conversations that oh, i've tried this and this didn't work or what did you do or somebody mentioned this and i want to know more and that's where you really get the again the seeds that from a professional learning and development point of view is what you then do with that yeah and i, and I mean so I, I also call it sort of humanizing leadership is that people you're up here on a pedestal leading and you know we, we've got a we got to kind of communicate that you are flesh and blood you are you know you you have all your own human and personal things that you want to kind of talk about and you're not just ahead you know that is not just your your your, your default kind of role of persona um so like munich we're, we're there we will and we'll help you promote it i want to get on to women's ed because you're a board member um and it's an organization that was founded to connect female education um and educational leaders Tell us about this and why is it so important to you? Uh, so I was um, in London. So I, I was, I'd been at BSN in a while and I met um, Vivian Porritt for lunch. Some of you may know Vivian Porritt from the Institute of Education. And she is the, one of the founders of Women Ed and now the chair of Women Ed. And I was meeting her to talk about PD because that's her, that's her kind of expertise um, pre-women ed. And she started talking to me about women in education. And we were in some really dodgy cafe somewhere. I can't remember off the South Bank. And it was cold and it was wintry. And she, she said to me, Liz, you're the problem, which made me laugh. because I thought, well, good to know. Um, and what the reason I was the problem is because I didn't think there was a problem. I've had the most extraordinary career. I've traveled the world. I've met amazing people. I've had the opportunity to work in a profession that makes a difference. My life 
is good. And I am, I've, I've have worked with amazing female and male colleagues. In fact, most of my mentors, and that's interesting as well, um, have been amazing male leaders who have seen something in me that perhaps I haven't even seen myself. And so I thought as part of the work that I do um, in working with the idea of a global profession and building the capacity of the workforce for the future is we've got to realize the potential of women. Yeah. And so that's an ethical, it's a moral issue, uh, but actually it's around our young people. If we've got this huge workforce and we're not realizing the potential of that workforce for our young people, then we are failing our young people. Yeah. And so that's really why I got involved. And so. I set up with Women Ed Netherlands in 2017, and then I became strategic lead maybe 2018, I can't remember. Um, it's all a bit of a blur. And what we, I think we've now launched, maybe I've launched eight countries, something like that. And so we're now right across Europe. So I lead Europe and Asia. I'm about to hand over Asia to Natasha Hilton. Bravo, Natasha. I'm very happy because I don't have to do all the time zone stuff then. Um, but we're, yeah, it's great. So that's all it is. It's a network and it's very predominantly through Twitter and social media. And it's for men and women. It's not, it's not, because actually we're one. That's going to be my question. Yeah. Again, you know, do, 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 do you silo out everyone that doesn't fit the, the, the stereotype, um, you know, white, white male, late 40s. Um, so, but, so, who, so who can join and how do you join this? this I'm gonna put, is it a movement or is it a... a well, it's a movement, but it's because it's such a huge movement now um, all across the world that um, we're going through the process of um, charitable status at the moment um, because now money, not a huge amount of money, but money is coming in. So everything about women owned is pro bono. Everyone does everything for free. But now we're working with the DfE in England um, with uh, some university funding at master's level. So, yes, yeah, so we're now going to become a charity, a global charity, but based in the um, with the head office in the UK. And the aim is to connect, to create a global network to raise the issues around realizing the potential of the profession. And that's it's as simple as that. So there's no membership or anything. You haven't got to pay in anything. Yeah. Just, it's nothing like that. You just follow follow um, uh, at Women Ed. Uh, on uh, Twitter. If you're in the UK, you can find your region as well. So if you're in, I don't know, Yorkshire, just put in Women Ed Yorkshire and it will come up. Um, if you're global, so you're living in another country, just put in Women Ed and the country that you live in and that Twitter account will come up and you can uh, follow that and join the conversation. If you want to join, uh, if you want to put a bit more time and energy in as opposed to just lurking, although we don't mind lurkers, um, just tell somebody in your country and they'll, you, become an, you can become a national lead um, or a regional lead. I mean, it is a great network. It is a great network. And, uh, you know, c connecting people on, 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 on issues that, that, you've, that you've highlighted is hugely important. I mean, I've got two daughters um and you know whatever careers i get they go into i know that you know there will always be this this un whether it's bias whether it's unconscious or conscious it exists um and you know we we have to teach a our, both our young men and women about how to deal with you know unconscious and conscious bias in all aspects whether it's through race or sex or whatever it is um but everybody needs to be in that conversation and we need opposing views so we come out and um, and everybody can really benefit from from movements like this. So um, it sounds great. So we're, we're, we'll we'll certainly tweet tweet more about it. I think I think half my workforce is is female anyway. So that that's good, particularly on the techie side. That probably means you're above the global average. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, let, let's let, let's hope so. I, I don't know where we are, um, but yeah, it's 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 a great it's a great thing you've done. Um, 
I want to kind of wrap up with sort of trends for CPD in schools. You know, what, what needs to change? So if we're looking ahead the next five years, maybe let's push it out to, to the next decade. You know, you've obviously been uh, a, a major part of driving, you know, school improvement through, through professional development training and other, other kind of initiatives. If we're looking ahead the next 10 years, what do you think teachers really need and what skills are they going to need and what support are they going to need um, to be able to deliver education that's going to be fit for purpose for our young men and women? So I think that the, the biggest thing that we need is to stop expecting someone else to do it for us. And so I think the period that we're now in is that you've got to find as, as individual staff and also collectively as a staff, what it is that you need and then find other people that also need it. And then, I mean, it's almost the ILA idea, but in a, in a virtual connectedness where you team up with other people that want to work on the same thing. And then from there, I think it's about commissioning programs and expertise from outside to work alongside you, but actually it's owned and designed at a ground level. So I think the, the days of going on a course, going on a workshop, I mean, there's still a place for those, but if we're looking at hardcore school improvement, then I think it has to be owned locally first and then designed, co-designed to meet the needs of the individual school. And what that's going to be, well, it's going to be different depending on where you are in the world. One of the big challenges that we have in the international sector is that the growth is not in the expatriate families and expatriate students. It's in domestic students and middle-class aspiration within those countries. And so that raises all kinds of challenges around what does our workforce look like? You know, do we still think it should be native English speaking? You know, should it be predominantly white um, from the westernized countries of, you know, the States, UK, South Africa, Australia, the usual recruiting countries? And so I think it's time for schools to start to think about all of those areas and then start to co-design programs of professional learning for school improvement that address those issues. So true international mindedness, not thinking about curriculum, but thinking about ourselves. Wow. What a great way to end. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.